Let me begin, begin with uh, something I read on Twitter this week. Uh, if you're not on Twitter, you need to get on there. Um, <laughs> because I'm on it and Nick Mudge and I, we exchange extraordinary wisdom over the weeks and you, you need to uh, be looking at that really. Anyway, this is on Twitter this week uh, from the Atheist Forum, right? So this is a forum that promotes atheism. And uh, they said this, Christianity, and it's a definition of Christianity, belief that one God created a universe 13.79 billion years old, 93 billion light years in diameter, don't even try, <laughs> consisting of over 200 billion galaxies, each containing an average of 200 billion stars or suns, only to have a personal relationship with you, and in brackets, you can think they're saying ridiculous. The best reply that came to that tweet was this, that's why we sing. <laughs> I thought that was brilliant. <laughs> if you remember nothing else this morning, you might want to remember that. Well, we're looking at uh, this theme of living in exile, and I'm actually going to start today by picking up on a couple of verses in Matthew's Gospel, in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 13 to 15, and uh, that may be a, a bit out of where we've been in 1 Peter, which I'll come back to, but you'll see the reason that I want to start there. By the way, I see we've now got shelves for Bibles, so if you want to grab a Bible any time in the meeting, uh, please grab it from uh, one of those shelves. But in Matthew chapter 2, verse 13... Uh, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. And so he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son." We hardly ever refer to this bit of the nativity story. It's right at the end of the nativity account. And really, we hardly ever mention it, I suppose, basically, because we've got zero information. Uh, Joseph uh, took his wife Mary and the baby Jesus, and they, they fled to Egypt. So, uh, we know nothing about what they did there. Uh, have you ever even wondered how they actually managed to live in Egypt? I've actually got a theory about the gold that the wise men brought to the baby Jesus. I wondered if they survived on that. Uh, but for them, it was a period of exile. They were exiled from their own land and into Egypt for a season. And during those years that they were there, they must have longed for home. And of course, there came a time when they did return, and for them, the exile that they had had imposed on them was over. The Jews as a whole were very familiar with the theme of exile, and that's because of the events that took place around 586 BC. In 586 BC, the Babylonian hordes uh, swarmed down from the north, from, from Babylon, and they overrun uh, Judah, southern Israel, and they destroyed the, the city of Jerusalem, and even more significantly, they destroyed the temple. And having just really battered the land and caused all this destruction, they then 
took a whole group of Jews, and particularly the kind of leading Jews, but a whole bunch of Jews were taken from Israel or southern Judah up into the north and were forced to settle around the city of Babylon. And that period of exile, when the Jews were living up in the north in, in Babylon, is really one of the great tragedies of Jewish history. It's remembered as one of the most tragic events that took place in the whole of Israel's history. And you can catch the, the kind of the sadness of it in the Psalms. If you, if you go to Psalm 137, and you see a, a, an account written there during the period of exile, by the rivers of Babylon, these are exiles uh, who are writing this, by the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion, now the name for Jerusalem. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. But how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? And you kind of get the feeling and the despair of exile at that particular point. So we're picking up again uh, on this theme of exile today, and uh, I want to begin probably in a bit of a personal way almost by underlining to you our need, I think our need is very strong, and I feel this quite passionately as we're going through this series, our need to realise that we are living in exile. And I really want to kind of underline that to you because I've had a bit of a revelation about it myself. In a way, I would say that I've always known it. Uh, but sometimes there are things that you know that kind of jump out of you, uh, jump out at you, uh, and things that you've known before, and suddenly the force fit hits you. And it was when I went to the advanced conference some months ago, and they were beginning to unpack uh, this theme of exile. It began to dawn on me, and then of course we've uh, had these series of messages from one Peter, and I. I do see today the need to recognize that if we are Christian believers, we are presently living in, in a way in exile in this world. And that's how it gets picked up, of course, right at the beginning of 1 Peter, the very first verse. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, I've got a personal confession here, and that's as I've been preaching for 50 years, and up until the last few months, I've always assumed that the reference in exile, to exiles in 1 Peter chapter 1 was to the Jewish diaspora, uh, to Jewish Christians, those that have come to faith as Jews, who got scattered throughout different parts of the empire. But actually, I've come to recognize that isn't correct. I've only just realized this. Uh, so, you, can, you, you know, an old dog can, can learn new tricks. And uh, uh, this has only really come home to me that, in fact, Peter is writing to Gentile churches. It's possible that there were one or two converted Jews in them. Uh, but he's really writing to uh, Gentile churches. And also, he adds the word elect. He says, to God's elect exiles. And the fact is that the word elect in the New Testament is a, 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 term, <coughs> a term for believers. It's speaking of those that God has chosen to be his people. And God has chosen us to be his people. The result is that we are God's elect, but we're exiles. 
And if we were to live in a Muslim-majority nation, I think we'd understand this and feel this more strongly and recognise it uh, to be the case more strongly. But my friends, I think today we're living with such a massive shift taking place in our culture and in our society that we must wise up to this as to what we really are at the present time. And of course it gets developed uh, by Peter even further in 1 Peter chapter 2, which we've been looking at the uh, last uh, two or three weeks, where Peter uses the term exile again in verse 11. Uh, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. There he is using the term again. Now, if you were using an older copy of the New International Version or some other translations, you you might see that there's a slight variation on the way this is translated. And so uh, some of the translations put it as strangers and aliens. Uh, And uh, the word alien is probably not used in the most recent translation because the word alien tends to have a particular view. Uh, I don't think I've ever watched any of the alien films. They're too scary for me. But there are these kind of uh, ideas about aliens around, of course. And then the whole idea of aliens is now surrounded by conspiracy theory. Uh, And I'm not one who's given to conspiracy theories at all, but you know the kind of things that tends to to be said, that there are these spacecraft from uh, other planets that are flying around our planet and they've got aliens on board and sometimes they kind of come and look at us and sometimes even touch down and kind of get out the spacecraft and uh, uh, there's a place called Rossmore in the United States and uh, the theory is that the Americans gathered up a bunch of alien bodies that people who died as aliens and they got them stored away and uh, people tried to break into where it was last year and even those people who say that they've in fact been abducted by aliens and they've flown around for a bit and then been deposited back on earth and you you get these things being said about aliens well I I have no track with that at all Uh, I don't go with conspiracy theories because of course it's always been said the government is covering up here They, they know all these things but they're covering it up well I say I don't really go with that but I would say to you perhaps there are aliens after all but the aliens are us. <laughs> we're the exiles and we are the aliens because we're out of place in some sense as exiles in this world. And I wonder if, if today you don't begin to feel that somewhat. I think of the moral chaos of our culture. It's only one aspect. But the constant push to, to kind of ease up on our already very liberal abortion laws and to to make things even easier in terms of abortion. And then, of course, right now we're caught up in this kind of gender war thing, the most extraordinary things being said about self-identity and uh, uh, the whole issue about what gender is and what you can, can claim. But in a way, it's more than that. Don't you feel that there's a subtle pressure? We've got to conform to this. This is the demand on us. This is the pressure. We've got to believe these things today. You've got to conform to to this kind of modern way of thinking. Uh, Also, uh, if we think that way, uh, there's a very interesting little extract from this book which is being read by some of us and which has been promoted with regard to this series, Evangelism as Exiles. And the author has this paragraph. He says... We should recognise that the experience of exile isn't always one where we have traditional enemies who draw lines and fight battles. They don't merely shun and exclude. Sometimes 
or even more frequently, exile looks like good friends who want to include us in their fun. But when you don't go along with their wickedness, they scoff and deride you for not participating in their sin. That's an interesting comment that some in this congregation may well find themselves facing. So in some ways, this doesn't feel like home. It feels as though I'm living in exile. But then I want to see that we need, in a way, to combine that with another feeling that there is a better country for us. Uh, And that's our country. And we particularly see this in the way that the writer in Hebrews chapter 11, a very famous chapter on faith, speaks about the experience of Abraham. Let me just pick up a, a few verses from Hebrews chapter 11. In Hebrews 11 and verse 9, he says, By faith Abraham made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. So he knew what it was to be in exile. He lived in tents, as did his descendants, Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he, Abraham, was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And so you've got this description of Abraham, who was for a time living as a foreigner, living like an exile, but somehow looking for something greater, looking for something more, looking for a a city that that God would provide. And uh, uh, that's us. We, we, We are strangers and foreigners in Uh, the present culture. If you go to to verse 13, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on the earth. And again, that's us in exile upon the earth, and yet looking for something, looking for something greater, looking for something bigger, looking for something which is truly our home, which is why uh, the, the writer then goes on and says this, people who say sh- such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. And in verse 16, he said they were longing for a better country, for a heavenly one. And that's why uh, We need to feel the other side of being in exile. On the one hand, because of what's going on around us, we can feel in exile. But at the same time, we also need to recognize that there is that which is ahead of us, so that heaven is ahead of us, and heaven is our country, and heaven is where we're headed, and it's where we really belong, and it's where we're actually going. But the devil can trick us. And the trick that the devil does with us is to make it appear that heaven is the strange land, as far as we're concerned, that this is our our proper and our permanent home. Now, I'm not talking here really about literal land that we might uh, be on, that we put our feet on. Uh, I'm talking more about the environment, about the culture, about the society which is around us, and all that's happening today and the massive changes that are taking place in our culture and society, which move further and further away from Christian values and our requirements to conform to these things. And sometimes people, as Christian believers now, are paying a price because they won't conform, even in our nation, to some of the changes that are taking place. So there's a sense of being in exile right now, but also there needs to be the sense that we're exiles too because there's a better country ahead. 
And the reason that we perhaps don't feel as strongly as we might about that might be a failure in our teaching, it might be in our failure to excite people with the truth of what actually lies ahead for us as Christian believers. For decades, I have fought a battle over one verse of Scripture. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 9. And the Apostle Paul is using an Old Testament verse here, and he says, What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. And so many people pick that verse up and say, look, we we don't really know what's ahead. We don't know what heaven's going to be like. There's no description. It's all a bit vague and uh, sort of out there, and we don't really understand it. And the reason, in a sense, I fought a battle over this verse is not only because that is said, but it was even enshrined into one of the songs that we used to regularly sing about uh, having no idea what God has prepared for those who love him. And the song stopped there. We were kind of left dangling. And we used to sing it a lot. Well... Have you looked at this? Just read the very next sentence. It says, these are the things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. And so to say that we don't have any idea what heaven is like, we don't know where we're going, it's all vague and airy-fairy, is simply not true. Through the Word of God, by the Spirit of God, we've got revelation of what lies ahead of us. In fact, the, the book of Revelation, at one point, uh, speaks of pressure on the church and demonic assaults upon believers, and then sums it up in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 11 by saying, and they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. But Christian friends, we do love our lives so much that we tend to shrink from death. And why is that? Again, maybe it's a lack of education, a lack of meditation upon what the Bible actually says, a lack of excitement about what is there for us in the future, uh, a lack of understanding about our real country. And we become so enamored with living in exile because, and this is the other side of the story for us in a way, because so many things in this life are good. I'm not rubbishing everything uh, that takes place. I'm, I'm delighted to, to be living uh, in, well, I was about to say Paul, actually, I was just on the edge in Bournemouth, but, you know, <laughs> I sneak into Paul. Uh, I'm delighted to be living in this area. I love it down here, and uh, there's so much in life that one can rejoice uh, over and think, this is good, life is good. But as things hot up for us, and they are hotting up for us, then surely we need to recognize the growing discomfort of exile. C.S. Lewis once said this, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. And let me give you some headlines, all taken from the Bible, about this other world. This is only headline stuff, but this is where we're going. We're going to see God face to face. We're going to reign with Christ. We're going to have resurrection bodies. We're going to live on a renewed, restored earth. We're going to explore forever a regenerated universe. There will be no more pain and no more death and no more cancer and no more tears. Every hunger is going to be satisfied. Every uh, thirst will be quenched. Every passion and longing will be fulfilled. We'll continually grow in our knowledge of God, in our understanding of Christ, in our wonder at the cross, in our appreciation of the Spirit, 
we will fulfill our eternal destiny as being worshippers of God. And when we have been there forever, there'll be no less days to sing God's praise than when we first began. And the Holy Family, as we tend to call them sometimes, were in exile. And they must have longed for home. And Israel was taken into exile into the north and into Babylon. And there they wept for home. And we're exiles because heaven is our home. Not surprising that in Colossians 3.1, Paul says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And I want to suggest that today our longing for home needs to increase, and more so as we realize that we're in exile. This isn't our permanent home we're passing through. We are exiles at the present time. Right, next, we need to build a colony of heaven. I want to say something here to avoid misunderstanding. I, I, I recognize I, I could walk into a trap here uh, that makes it appear as though I'm saying that it's also awful out there that we need to kind of uh, retreat and uh, just kind of uh, hide ourselves away. Uh, that, the Bible doesn't teach that ever or at all. We are not to live in isolation like a closed order of monks. We're here in the world, although we're in exile, but living in the world. We're not meant to be of the spirit of this world, but we are living in this world. Now, Paul also makes a comment on exile, uh, particularly, I think, and his strongest comment would be Philippians 3, verse 20, where he says, our citizenship is in heaven. And uh, that's where we really belong. That's where our citizenship is, in heaven. And there have been some translations of that, which you may be aware of, that some people have translated it in order to bring home the force and the meaning of it with real relevance. You are a colony of heaven. It's a great translation. And I think we have to think, how do we build a colony of heaven? The answer is, I believe, above all, by being the church. Not retreating into isolation, but we see what we are in the world, a colony of heaven, as the church is really the church. Let me just make some comments on what it means to be the church, therefore. I think for one thing, we need to understand we are a distinctive people. Here we are in 1 Peter chapter 2, and Matthew spoke on these verses passionately a couple of weeks ago in verse 9. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. And these are covenant terms, first used of Israel, but now used of us Christian believers, that we are the covenant chosen royal priesthood of God, a holy nation, a people who once were no people, but now we have become uh, the people of God. We're in the world, but that we belong to God. And we need, therefore, to build up this colony of heaven because it's a colony of God's people. We're a distinctive people. And we're not going to simply blend in with every woke idea that there is around today and every political correct kind of pressure that there is today. We must build church, a colony of heaven on earth. I've often used this illustration in different ways. And I think the reason I've used it because... 
uh, has such a powerful effect on me. And every time I use it, it kind of comes back to me. I, it's a, it was a, an extraordinary moment in my life. But years ago, I had been ministering in India, and I was at the end of a two-week trip. And Sue wasn't with me. I was on my own, so I was feeling a bit kind of isolated. And it had been a very demanding couple of weeks, because when I went to India, I was kind of lecturing and preaching every single day. And uh, I was right at the very end of this trip, and I was in Bangalore in southern India, and it was one final meeting on a Sunday evening, and I was in an upstairs room, and uh, India is an amazing place. Uh, Outside, I could hear the sounds of India. You could look out the window and see the vibrancy and the colour, which is India, just just amazing. But here I was uh, in this upstairs room, and I was with a congregation, maybe I... I've got to remember now, 50, 60 people maybe, and we were, we were round in a, in a circle, and uh, a lot of this congregation were uh, women who were extremely poor and obviously had no education, no opportunities in life, and were working as brickers, or b- carriers of bricks, not brickers even, as carriers of bricks on the building sites of Bangalore for 12 hours a day. And uh, there there were these, these women and, and other people, and uh, we had a Tamil script uh, overhead projector singing the songs. You, I can't read a single letter in Tamil script. Uh, the songs were different, the language different, the music was different, the instruments were different, the people were different. I had nothing in common with them. I had uh, no, nothing in common in terms of background, in terms of experience, in terms of work and opportunities, even in a sense in terms of worship. And here I was at the end of this two weeks, and I was in the middle of this thinking, oh Lord, I just want to go home. I'm tired. I'm fed up. I just want to go home. And suddenly, I had an extraordinary encounter with God, and I just felt something change in my spirit. And suddenly what overwhelmed me So I stood with these people, with whom in a way I appeared to have nothing at all in common. And I suddenly felt, but these are my people. Worshipping the same Lord, the same Saviour, the living God. We are one people. I honestly can say, in that moment, I didn't want to be anywhere else on earth. These were my people. We are a distinctive people, brothers and sisters. Also, we're a gathered people. You use the word church, and I think it's very easy to think Sunday mornings. Well, church is much more than going to meetings. But certainly, it is about gathering together on Sunday mornings for us. This is the most visible way we display as a colony of heaven. And so often, we tend to say, I'm going to church on Sunday. That's wrong. We gather as the church on Sunday. The church is not a place we go to. It's the people we are together with this colony of heaven. Sometimes I hear leaders say things like, um, uh, you know, they've got so many in their church that only come along every two or three weeks. Can I just say, I've been here two years now, I'd like to pay a, pay a compliment to this church. That is not my experience of this church. There's a very high level of commitment in this church, uh, and I feel that's one of the great strengths we have here at Gateway. But, I mean, how do we express relationship? Uh, it's a funny way if we just, just turn up occasionally to be with somebody we're related to. I've been married for over 50 years. I don't visit my wife just every two or three weeks. I mean, we have an ongoing relationship. Uh, to view the church as an optional place to go is to fail to see the church as she really is. God's people in exile gather together to worship 
to hear the Word of God, to be together. Now, I don't want to be legalistic about Sunday attendance, <clears throat> and on any particular Sunday, there may be very good reasons why on this particular Sunday, I can't be with this people. I absolutely appreciate that. But the reason I'm saying this is not because I'm trying to, as it were, up the attendance. What I'm trying to do is to say, I want you to see what the church is. I want you to understand what the church really is. It's not somewhere we just pitch up to. It's not even a where. It's not somewhere we pitch up to if we feel like it. It's the distinctive people of God in exile building together a colony of heaven. And so often what I'm reading today is that people long for community, that people are lonely. But if you want community, you've got to invest in community. The church can't simply be our community at our convenience. It's not how it works. We need to invest in it to be that community. And even more so if we clearly see that we're a people in exile. Because I believe that as we gather, we help to build strength into one another as we live in this world. And then again, we're a beautiful people. If you look around here this morning... What you're looking at is a room full of beautiful people. Now, you might, thank you, Carlos, you might be, you might be saying there is an exception up front, but uh, I mean, look, look around, and uh, you've got a room full of beautiful people. The book of Revelation speaks in metaphors and pictures. This is a metaphor, this is a picture, all right, understand, it's a picture, but it's a description in picture language of the church in heaven and in glory. Now, because the picture is uh, so far removed from the, the immediate concept of that, it might be hard to see, but that's what it is. This is the description of the church in glory. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone, jasper, sapphire, agate, emerald, oyx, ruby, chrysolite, beryl, topaz, turquoise, jacinth, amethyst. And you've got all these precious stones and they describe the church in glory as they glint and they sparkle and as they shine. Let me tell you, my friends, this church is full of precious jewels. I really believe that. People who love one another and people who use their gifts and people who serve one another. Now, we're all different, even like those jewels described there are all different. And we rub up against one another. Because we've got different personalities, and we've got different temperaments, and we've got different levels of sanctification. But it's the very rubbing up against one another that makes us shine with a greater clarity and glory. And uh, I know what it's like to serve in a church. Uh, and I know sometimes it can, sound, it can seem a bit, gosh, this is, this is hard work, this is hard going, you know, serving here in this area is pretty demanding. My friends, please, again, don't see it wrongly, don't see it as a duty. But see who we are as part of a colony of heaven and how we're building together with one another. And then I also believe that we're a powerful people. Uh, and to illustrate that, I'm simply going to read a few sentences from a letter that was written by Martin Luther King in 1963 while he was in Birmingham jail in Alabama in America. And this is what he wrote uh, in this, within this letter. He said, There was a time when the church was very powerful, in the time when uh, the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. 
In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the ways of society. Whenever the early Christians entered the town, the people in power became disturbed and immediately sought to convict the Christians for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. But the Christians pressed on in the conviction that they were a colony of heaven, called to obey God rather than man. Small in number, they were big in commitment, and by their efforts and example, they brought an end to the ancient evils of infanticide, read abortion, and gladiatorial contests, read gender wars, which we're experiencing at this time. All I can say is, Lord, give us grace that we might be a powerful people. Okay, thirdly, I want us to see we can be a blessing, see we can be a blessing. In 586 BC, Israel was exiled into Babylon. All these uh, thousands of Jews were taken away into exile in the north. But always God gives his people a prophet. And Jeremiah was a prophet who was active at this time. Actually, there were two prophets. Ezekiel also did some peculiar stuff on the side. But there was Jeremiah, uh, who was one of the active prophets. And he wasn't actually taken into exile in Babylon. Uh, in fact, he was later to go to Egypt, but uh, uh, Jeremiah was left behind and he, he looked at the ruins of Jerusalem and he looked at the ruins of the temple and he wept and he wept. That's why he's known as the weeping prophet. And if you read the book of Lamentations in the Old Testament written by Jeremiah, an extraordinary mixture of heartbreak and distress at the disaster that had occurred as the city, the temple had been ruined, the people had gone into exile, and yet at the same time, there's complete confidence in the faithfulness of God. But as he was there in the ruins of Jerusalem, and as the people had gone into exile, God inspired Jeremiah to write them a letter. And in Jeremiah 29, you can read this letter. This is how we start the chapter. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles, all right, and to the priests and the prophets and all the other people of Nebuchadnezzar that Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So he's writing to the exiles. And this is how the letter actually begins, verse 4. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those... I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Isn't that interesting? It was the Babylonians that had taken them into exile. God says, I carried you into exile. So somehow the sovereignty of God is involved in this. And that ought to be an encouragement to us as we consider our exile. Now, however much under pressure and out of place we might seem to be, somehow it's still under the sovereignty of God. He's brought us into exile. And he said, build houses and settle down, plant gardens, and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Now, I said earlier that we have a need to build the church as a colony of heaven. But there isn't, this is not, it's the last thing this is, is a call to isolate ourselves because it's also terrible out there. In fact, it's not also terrible out there. 
as much that we can appreciate in, and enjoy. But in exile is when the synagogue began. And it began because of Jews in exile gathering together to study the law and to pray and to talk to one another about what God had said in the law. Interestingly, they didn't have buildings, but they did have synagogues because synagogue is not the word for a building, although it's used like that today. The word synagogue, synagogue in the Greek, means a gathering. And so the Jews gathered. That was the first synagogue. That has a parallel with the church. We're always telling ourselves, but we're not good at being consistent. The church is not the building. It's the gathering of the called out people of God. And so in exile, they gathered in synagogues. It was a gathering of people. But Jeremiah does not encourage them into isolation. He doesn't say just gather and keep yourselves isolated. Far from it. He says, recognize you have a real part to play in the wider community, even while you're in exile. Now, you could build all sorts of things on these verses, but let me just make a couple of comments. Build homes, he says. Well, I think that means don't have a temporary mindset. Settle down, put some roots down. Some of us may need to do that. Plant gardens. Well, what can we say about that? It sounds like work, doesn't it? And so he's saying, come on, get a job. Don't just be idle. Get a job. Study. Get a job. Get into the community. Marry if you can. Not all of us can, but if you can, marry. Again, it's a call to settle down. Have babies. Well done, new parents here this morning. Have babies, right? Grow your population. Increase in numbers, he says, because if you increase in your numbers, you will actually increase in influence. And then perhaps most extraordinary, and in a sense, uh, the thing I'd like you to notice most of all, he says, bless the city. It's there in verse 7. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. And the way that brings, brings us back to 1 Peter chapter 2, I haven't preached 1 Peter 2 strictly today, but it's been in the background all the time. And the passage that we're there in 1 Peter 2, which res- says, respect those who are in authority, honour those that have authority over you, honour those in civil government. And this is a similar kind of call. Bless the city. We're not out to disrupt in an ungodly way. We're not trying to create, uh, create some sort of political rebellion. We are here, people in exile, but aware that the city in which we live in, BCP for us, needs to be blessed. And we can bless it as we pray for it, pray for the prosperity of this city. And my friends, one of the reasons that I pray that we will grow as a church, and I hope you all pray, is not just so that we can get even more crowded in this building, but that we might have more resources and more people with which to bless this city. Okay? So that we can do more work in refuges, refuges and situations like that, so that we can do more work with older people, those suffering dementia, and things like that. And all sorts of things that a city, as it were, opens up for Christians to get into and to bless and to bring their resources in order that we can bless the city. As the letter closes, I'm not going to read it, but as the letter from Jeremiah closes, he speaks to them prophetically of the fact they will have 70 years in exile and then they'll go home. And that was fulfilled after 70 years. They were able to start going back and eventually they rebuilt their temple and rebuilt their city. 70 years. How long is your life? (laughs) Well, the Bible tells us to expect 70 years. 
Um, some of us don't quite make that. Some of us get a bit of a bonus. But okay, it's around the 70-year mark. And then, if we think in terms of the country ahead, we're going home. We're not always going to be in exile. But meanwhile, meanwhile, please recognize we are in exile now. Let's build a colony of heaven. Let's see it here, Gateway Church. Colony of heaven. Settle down so that you can bless our wider community. It's interesting that in the New Testament, Babylon becomes the symbol of everything that is opposed to God and the community of God. Hardly surprising when you think that Babylon had destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. And so Babylon becomes the symbol of that which stands in opposition to God and to his people and to what he's building. Interestingly, the book of Revelation says that finally Babylon will fall. Every opposition to God will come down. But we're going home. We're exiles, but friends, there's a better country. <laughs> Let's stand together, can we please? <clears throat> Father, we thank you for alerting us to this theme over these weeks, and thank you for all that we've heard and all that we've been reminded of, Lord, over these weeks as we consider this theme. Lord, we want to say before you, though sometimes we might be tempted to it, we're not going to run into isolation and simply retreat and kind of stand away and stand off. Lord, we want you to bless BCP. Uh, and we want to be a blessing to BCP. We pray for the prosperity of our city, Lord, our community, and pray that we may be a blessing to the community. But, Father, give us courage, because we're going to have to stand against some things. And, Father, we pray that we won't simply blend in. And, Father, because of that, we ask that this community will be ever stronger. Father, that we may support one another, as it were, feed into one another, uh, bear up one another, carry one another's burdens, stand with one another, encourage one another. We might build a colony of heaven which will be to your glory. We thank you, Lord, for the comprehensiveness of our faith. That a God who perhaps billions of years ago said, let there be, and brought everything into existence that exists, will one day say, it is finished. And the curtain will come down. Christ will return. The whole universe will be regenerated. And Lord, we will recognize beyond what we recognize even now that you did do all this for us and that you have a personal relationship with me. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. Thank you that one day we're going home. Help us to appreciate life now, but we thank you. There's a better country ahead. Hallelujah.